My name is Maggie Freeling. I'm a journalist and producer, and this is Unjust and Unsolved, a podcast about people who I believe are wrongfully incarcerated for crimes that are actually unsolved. You've surely heard stories like these on the news, but the thing is, the ones you've heard about barely scratch the surface. The Innocence Project gives a conservative estimate that about 20,000 innocent people are currently locked away in U.S. prisons. After reading some of these stories, I felt compelled to do something. So I sent 20 letters to people who are locked up despite evidence pointing away from them. Some responded through mail, some emailed, and some called me on contraband cell phones. But all wanted their stories to be heard. So I left my public radio job and decided to do just that. In each episode, I speak with those people, their loved ones, supporters, and lawyers to shed light on how they wound up incarcerated for decades, despite the evidence, and how that means the crimes they were convicted of are still unsolved. This week, I'm telling the story of Diamantina Salinas Calahaco and Andreas Mascaro. June 13th, 1998, 36-year-old Daryl Calahaco was found beaten to death in his Houston home. The crime was brutal. The brutality of the crime was something that you only hear about in horror shows. Almost immediately, his wife, Diamantina, and her lover, Andreas Mascaro, were considered suspects. But both had alibis, and there was no physical evidence tying them to the scene. Andreas, an immigrant who spoke little English, says he was threatened by the police to confess. And without a full understanding of his rights, he did. Diamantina and Andreas did over a decade in prison before one of the most prolific serial killers you've never heard of confessed to the murder. One that I did, the, the lady, the, the, the blame for me doing it, she's serving life, life in prison. Who? Uh, this is the Diamantina Salinas Colojaco. With specific details that would give any good investigator or prosecutor pause. So why are Diamantina and Andreas still in prison? We'll get to that after this. So this case is going to be different than others you've heard because I actually didn't get to speak to Diamantina or Andreas. In Diamantina's first and only letter to me, she said that she cannot speak on the phone due to a lockdown. She said, thanks for your interest, but as I said, it's an impossible situation at this time. The truth is, I think she probably can talk on the phone. I think she doesn't want to. And maybe that's because there's some things she probably doesn't want to talk about. Diamantina is not a particularly likable person. This is journalist and podcaster Alex Hannaford, who did manage to interview her in 2018. You know, I've done a lot of criminal justice reporting over the years, and it's funny how, you know, who we've talked. We, there's a lot of talk about the, the sort of the perfect victim, and there is no, there is no perfect victim. I think the media or, or the public maybe want to, to somebody to be a very sort of sympathetic character, and for you to really want to root for them, and they make the best media narratives. Diamantina certainly does not. And you know, not everyone who is wrongfully convicted is the greatest person. People are people. She didn't, doesn't come across as a particularly sympathetic character. But the truth is that, you know, not everybody is perfect. And I don't think that she does herself any favors. But, you know, she's, she, is, she is who she is. 
But does that make her a cold-blooded killer? No. I wrote her a list of questions to answer, but she has not responded. And I don't think she will. But fortunately, Alex let me use some of his interview with her and keeps in touch with her via letter. She goes into detail in this letter about how uh, they're on lockdown. She talks about her age and her health and how difficult it's been. She mentions that you got in touch, um, but she said there's no access to the phone unless you're on the visitor list. I'm scrolling down now. Um, Sounds like she sent you a long one. Yeah, it is long. I'm trying to sort of, I mean, a lot of it was sort of just kind of updating me on uh, her situation and stuff. Um, she was talking about how the, yeah, she was talking about sort of not having any money. In the- Alex has a podcast called Huddled Masses, and the first season is called Dead Man Talking. He did a short episode on Diamantina and Andreas's case. His podcast was really focused on the serial killer who confessed to the murder of Diamantina's husband. This episode of Unjust and Unsolved dives deeper into their story and picks up where Alex left off. Saying, here we go. She says, um, regarding Proclaim Justice, she says, can you tell Yeah, Proclaim Justice, Jason Baldwin and John Harden, who you've heard from in DeMarco Wilson's case and Nikki Zinger's case. They've also taken Andreas and Diamantina's case because of Alex, which we'll get to later. I have these these sort of weekly calls with Danny and Johnny. Um, sorry, Danny and John. Oh, let's um, start calling him Johnny. He'll yeah, hate I know, it. exactly. <laughs> Alex is also a bit fuzzy on both Diamantina and Andreas's background because for his podcast, like I said, he wasn't focused on them as much as the serial killer who confessed to the murder of Daryl Kalahako. I also wrote Andreas, but have not heard back. So this episode doesn't go into their lives as much as I usually do, unfortunately. This episode is more about the crime their innocence, and a brutal serial killer who has claimed responsibility for numerous unsolved crimes across the country. Here's what we do know about Andreas Mascaro. He was born in Mexico in 1970. At 16, he had his first child, and then he had two more. And with poor working conditions and limited opportunities in Mexico, Andreas decided that he could better provide for his family in the United States. In 1995, he left Mexico to join his three brothers as a construction worker in Houston. When not working, Andreas spent time mostly with his brothers and their families playing pickup soccer games. Shortly after arriving to Houston, he met Dia Montina Salinas Calahaco at a bar. Dia Montina was a 42-year-old mom who had five kids with four different men. She was 15 years older than Andreas, who was 27, and she was quite beautiful. She was also very complicated. She wasn't a particularly good mother, for example. Uh, One of her kids has told me that. There are also questions about what kind of wife and partner she was. When she met Andreas, she was married to Daryl Kalahako her fourth husband. You know, that was, it's, it's weird. And we didn't, we didn't sort of dive really deep into that in the podcast. But again, it goes back to this. Was she a very nice person? No, it doesn't sound like she was. She was having this affair, uh, rubbing it in Daryl's face by uh, all accounts. She would sort of turn up with, Andre, you know, on, she said Andres knew Daryl. He would come to the house. So they knew each other. Court records actually state that they all had Thanksgiving together the year before. And Diamantina's son, Alex, testified that Andreas and Daryl were friends. Daryl would hire him to do work in their yard. 
Records also state that Diamantina was on probation for welfare fraud and was in a massive amount of debt, which they allege is why she married Daryl. Daryl was well off due to his parents' deaths when he was a kid. But shortly after the marriage, she met Andreas. Diamantina quickly moved in with him, renting him an apartment so she could spend time with him there. And she would sort of divide her time between the two. It seems like it was a weird situation. Of course, we don't know what Daryl really thought of the the situation, but it sounds like he was a pretty nice guy and, and didn't want to kind of rock the boat and sort of didn't really do much about it. On June 13th, 1998, Dia Martina was out with her two kids, the two youngest, 13-year-old Alex and 21-year-old Jose. When they returned home, Jose entered the house first, and he found Daryl's lifeless body brutally bludgeoned to death. His head was completely bashed in. Cast-off blood was on the ceiling and walls. He was in his swimsuit. There was no forced entry, and the murder weapon was not found. Here's Alex Hannaford talking to Diamantina when he visited her. Who would have wanted to kill Daryl? I have no idea, because Daryl wasn't a violent man. You know, he was, I mean, he was generous to the core. You know, he never said no to anybody that mm. I know of. Even if it was his last, even if it was the last, you know, his last shirt or whatever, he would give it. So no, Daryl didn't deserve that. The weird, weird thing <laughs> about this is uh, that is that when Diamantina, when the police came to the crime scene, and I guess they asked Diamantina, why would anyone want your husband dead? She said, uh, I think he was bisexual. And if you're thinking that's a weird response to the question, so did Alex. But for now, file the commentary away because it comes up again later. Anyway, when police started investigating, they immediately homed in on Diamantina and discovered she was having an affair. And now Diamantina, I will admit, was a logical suspect. If someone is killed and his wife is having an affair, that's going to draw police attention. And the motive was ready-made. Plus, it was compounded when they discovered Diamantina was in debt and Daryl had a large life insurance policy. Two days later, Diamantina went down to the station for questioning. She was questioned by Officer Bill Tabor. She says that Tabor told her that in order to leave, he had to take a statement. On the stand, Diamantina says she was never read her Miranda rights and asked for a lawyer, but Tabor said she didn't need one because she was getting ready to go home. Witnesses at the station could hear Tabor yelling at Diamantina, things like, I'm sick and tired of your motherfucking shit. Diamantina says he even showed her a picture of a needle, saying, if she doesn't tell the truth, she's going to get the needle. So she told him the truth of what happened. Diamantina met her kids at the apartment at around 6.30 Friday the 12th for dinner. She says she didn't see Daryl all day. She spoke to him around 2 p.m. on the phone and he was at work. At 7 p.m., Andreas and his brother got to the apartment after work. And Diamantina says they ate dinner and then she left around 8.45 to do errands. Around 10 p.m., she went to the club, left around 1 a.m., got food, and got to the apartment by 1.45 a.m. Then she and the boys went back home to Daryl's. Investigator Tabor was typing up the report of what she was allegedly saying, and then he asked her to sign it. She asked what she was signing, and he said, quote, what you told me. And then Diamantina did something stupid. She didn't have her glasses with her, and she could not see without them. 
She says Tabor did not read the statement to her and she just wanted to leave. It was late. She had not had her insulin for diabetes and was dizzy and nauseous. So she signed the statement. Turns out it was a confession. It was not what she says she told Tabor. It says that Diamantina got her lover, Andreas Mascaro, to kill Daryl for his $100,000 life insurance policy. I mean, it was always about money. Um, this was always about Diamantina standing to get this, you know, life insurance payout of $100,000 and asking her boyfriend to, to commit this crime for her. And I don't think it was ever answered, like, what was Andres capable of flying into this level of rage? I mean, this was a very, very, very brutal, rageful killing. Um, and what, he did it because his girlfriend told him to? Right. In fact, witnesses for Andreas say that on the stand, he was a peaceful person and would not have hurt anyone. The prosecution alleged that that night, Diamantina intentionally lured her kids away from the home so Andreas could go in and kill Daryl while they were out. I think it's just very easy to say, oh, there was a life insurance payout. Um, there's motive. You know, but lots of people have life insurance. I have life insurance. <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if that's... Um, it, it, it's, I guess it's easy to to make um, a sort of motive fit after the event and persuade a jury of that. And we've seen it so many times. But it wasn't just the motive the prosecution had. Andreas actually did confess to the murder, even though he had an alibi. He was at work with his brother all day. And then after work, he went to the apartment with his brother. They were there all night. And then at midnight, Diamantina's sons showed back up at the apartment and they were also with him. Police arrested Andreas shortly after Diamantina was interrogated. They bust into his house at around 5 a.m. with guns. He was undocumented, spoke little English, didn't know his rights, and was terrified. When he was at the station, he says that he was threatened by officers with deportation. He figured if he just said that he did it, they would do their investigation and they would see that he didn't. But, of course, that's not what happened. Diamantina and Andreas were tried separately. At their trials, the only evidence was the alleged confession and the motive of life insurance. It was all circumstantial. The medical examiner didn't even know the time of death for Daryl. They say he was killed at least 12 hours before his body was found, but that would be 2 p.m. in the afternoon. And actually, at trial, the youngest son, Alex, testified that he saw Daryl around 5 p.m. Daryl was alive and well. So Daryl would actually have had to have been killed sometime between 5 p.m. and 2.30 a.m. when he was found. The medical examiner said that there was liver mortis and rigor mortis when the body was found. And rigor mortis starts around two hours after death. So the latest he could have been killed was 12 a.m. And the earliest would have been 5 p.m. Andreas was tried and convicted first in March of 1999. Diamantina in July of 1999. Both were given life sentences. And in Texas, a life sentence is 40 years before becoming eligible for parole. They're not eligible until 2038. So when you went to meet Diamantina, um, tell me about meeting her. I mean, what was your impression? Tell me about meeting her. Yeah, and prison, prison is not kind to anybody. I mean, she's... Um... 
she's uh, her health is suffering she's uh, elderly now she's um overweight she's i think she's got diabetes she's just not in a good way and um but still maintained her innocence. In fact, she told Alex that years earlier, she received a letter from a man named Angel Resendez, who told her he was the real killer of her husband. I got a letter from him saying that, uh, that he was going to own up to what he did. I read the letter and uh, the warden took the letter, so I never got it back. And from what I understand, Resendez wrote me two more times, but they were intercepted, so I never got those letters. Now... Alex already knew this. In fact, the whole reason he was visiting Diamantina is because of this confession. Over a decade earlier, in 2003, Alex was reporting on Angel Resendez when he first confessed. I was a music journalist and an arts journalist back uh, in London. I worked for the Evening Standard. Um, and when I moved to the States in 2003, um, I knew I couldn't make a living just writing about my music and art for publications back in the UK. So I kind of had to uh, expand my repertoire. And so uh, an editor of mine at the time said, you know, the religious right and death row are going to become your bread and butter. And she was right. So, you know, I wasn't in Texas long before I got in touch with the prison system and, and, and had a few uh, inmates in mind that I wanted to interview. I thought their stories were interesting. Angel Resendez was one of them. Um, so there I was on death row, completely out of my depth, interviewing um, one of the most notorious serial killers in America. In the late 1990s, the infamous railroad killer spread terror throughout the country. It became a national serial killer manhunt. I was afraid. I thought he would come back and get me. Angel Resendez is known as the railroad killer, a Mexican-American serial murderer suspected in over 26 deaths. He was born in Puebla, Mexico in 1959. He'd come to the U.S. undocumented sometime in his teens. He often beat his victims to death several times raping the women. He's a sexual predatory serial killer. He sexually assaults women in their death. He got his name the Railroad Killer because he would often travel the country by train. Getting off wherever it stops and then randomly selecting victims who live nearby. Resendez's alleged victims were from all over the U.S. Texas, Florida, Kentucky, Illinois. He seemed to be indiscriminate when it came to targets. One victim was a school teacher, another was a pastor, another an elderly man. By 1999, he was a fugitive on the FBI's 10 most wanted list. Resendez is labeled the railroad killer and a reward is posted for his capture. The hunt for Resendez continues as the investigators follow every lead. Searching the trains remains the main focus. Alex first interviewed him in 2003, about four years after he surrendered to the Texas Rangers in July 1999. Angel Resendez is a pretty disgusting person. Um, <laughs> listening to your podcast, you know, the crimes and, you know, listening to that one survivor. Um, yeah. he, he's right. really gruesome and disgusting. I mean, can you tell me about what it was like to meet him and, and anything you can inform listeners about? Yeah, of course, it was a long, long time ago. But I think um, the first thing that struck me was how sort of diminutive he was. He was very small. He's kind of overweight. He's really not very frightening at all and talks in a very calm, quiet voice. And actually, I realized sort of halfway through the interview, that's probably how he manages to sort of, or how he managed to disarm his victims, you know, because he doesn't seem threatening. Resendez's murders were known to be horrifically brutal and were often beatings, like Daryl's. 
The brutality of the crime was something that you only hear about in horror shows. Resendez was ultimately caught and convicted only once for the murder of Claudia Benton, a 39-year-old pediatric neurosurgeon. Dr. Benton was found to have multiple stab wounds in her back and hands, as well as fractures to her skull, the latter inflicted by a bronze statuette lying on the floor. She had also been sexually assaulted. What they saw was devastating that uh, a person could be treated in such a way. This happened in December 1998, six months after Daryl was killed. Claudia was murdered in Austin, Texas, about 180 miles from Houston. And what was your, you know, your motive going into that? What did you want to talk to him about? You know, why were you interested in him? You know, I had in my mind, I wanted to ask him if there were other cases that sort of remained unsolved. Um, and, and that's what I ended up doing. And that's kind of when he drops this bomb on you, where he says, actually, there's an innocent person in prison and I committed that murder. One that I did, the, the lady, the, the, the blame for me doing it, she's serving life, life in prison. Who? Uh, this is the Diamantina Salinas Colojaco. Yeah, it was bonkers. I mean, honestly, I, I was not expecting that. And this is one of the crazier things most people don't realize about our criminal justice system. Someone else confessing to a crime does not automatically lead to the case being re-examined. They can wave their hands in the air and scream, I did it from the mountaintops. But if the investigating officers or the DA decide not to hear them out, they don't have to. Like if you remember in Darrell Ewing's case, when that happens, it's up to defense lawyers to bring this new evidence to a judge. And it's not always enough. Dia Martina has never really had anyone in her corner in part because, like Alex said, she's not the ideal, sympathetic defendant. It's true that sometimes people do falsely take credit for crimes they didn't commit, so when someone like Resinda steps forward, it's fair for officials to start out skeptical. But as far as we know, Resendez had no reason to even know about Daryl's murder, much less claim he was the killer, if that weren't true. And he had actually confessed to other murders before. Two burglars had been operating in the area and they uh, were picked up by the police and they were shown a photograph of this woman's house and they were asked, "Did you? is this one of the places that you burgled? And they both uh, said, yes, it looks like one of the places we burgled. Well, actually it wasn't, um, but they were arrested for her murder because they placed themselves at the crime scene and they were charged with her murder and they were sent to jail pending trial. And I believe they were both in jail for nearly a year uh, waiting trial. Um, And at the end of that year, Resendez confessed to the murder. And luckily for those people in Georgia, the authorities took that seriously, seriously enough to sort of, for the authorities in Georgia to fly to Texas to interview Resendez on death row. And to realize that every detail that Resendez gave was accurate and that they had actually arrested and charged the wrong people. So those two people were freed uh, because they were actually innocent. Wow. Um, And it bears scarily similar um, details to the Colohaka and Mascaro case. And because that confession proved true, Alex took this new confession seriously. But I did write about it. You know, I wrote the story for this magazine in London. Um, I later found I wasn't the only person he'd confessed that to. I mean, he'd he'd confessed it to Mark Babinek, who was then a reporter for the AP. Alex and Mark both wrote about the case. 
but that was it. And this happens. When we journalists cover a case, we can lay out all the evidence in the world. But in the end, it's up to lawyers, judges, even advocates to get someone released from prison. Journalists just report the stories. You know, you move on. You've, you've done your thing. It's not like the AP will suddenly let Mark do another story on the same, the same story again and again and again until something happens. And here we are 20 years on and Diamantina Colahaka and Andres Mascara are still in prison. In 2006, Resendez was executed by lethal injection. Years later, in 2018, Alex started Dead Man Talking, his podcast about Angel Resendez, the crimes he committed, and the unsolved crimes he's confessed to. That's when he got proclaimed justice involved in Diamantina and Andreas's case. Should I keep chewing while you're recording? Yeah, that's really <laughs> if you recognize that chewing, it's John Harden from Proclaim Justice. As you already know, Proclaim Justice is Jason Baldwin from the West Memphis Threes organization. He works with John Harden, co-founder and private investigator, and also private investigator Danny Waxler. Well, I've been an investigator personally for 25 years. Danny is very much an old school, take no shit kind of private investigator. He was wearing a suit when we met. John and Jason are much more chill. When Proclaim Justice took Diamantina and Andreas's case, Danny already knew of Resendez. Yeah, I lived in Houston for about 15 years of my life, so I was already very familiar with Angel Resendez and the railway killer. Kids were scared of going to school or locking their windows at night because there was a serial killer that was committing crimes not just in Texas, but across the country. When Alex and Proclaim Justice started looking into the confession, first, they were skeptical. But then Danny mentions the Georgia confession, which two innocent people were freed. Why would you confess to one crime that was proven to be correct and then completely make up another crime, confess to that? We found we couldn't, we couldn't find proof of anything that he had confessed to that wasn't factual. We're not saying that we believe everything that Angel Resendez ever said or confessed to was factual, but we're saying we haven't found a shred of evidence that he confessed to something that we can prove that's false, which made us say, we have to look at this. So they did. In his confession, Angel Resendez described the Calohaca home. He gave pretty specific details about the interior of the house where Daryl Calohaca was murdered. Um, he knew the color of the carpet. He knew layout. He knew a, a, a painting. I believe he said there was a painting of some ships. In fact, there were there was a painting of the Nina Pinta and Santa Maria in their house. So he's giving great detail to also the exterior of the house, uh, the way the balcony sh- shaped, the way the the fence is shaped, the pool, everything. And I guess someone might ask, you know, couldn't these the carpet and the photo have been in crime scene photos or a reporter reported on it or something like that. Yeah, it could have been. And that's one of the things that we found intriguing as we as we obtained the case investigative file and we started navigating our way through documents, crime scene information. We say, well, we found 246 stories press related and could not find any of those details in any any form of media that he could have obtained the details that were so specific that he gave us. In fact, Alex told me this too. AP reporter Mark Babinek was really the only one reporting on this case back then. And the AP, as a wire service, news outlets could take his reporting and run the exact story. So many of those articles that Danny mentioned were Mark's. 
And Mark told Alex he's never reported on any of those details. It just wouldn't make sense for the short report he was doing. There's only two possibilities here. There's only two. Either somebody is feeding him all of those details, and for whatever reason, he's willing to falsely confess and take take their descriptions, or he was there. That's it. Those are the only two possibilities. And like Danny was saying, we have seen nothing. There's another case in Florida that he confessed to that turned out to, he led them right to a a missing woman's body. In 2000, Resendez led officers to the skeletal remains of two teens who were missing for three years. Wendy Von Huben, 16, and her boyfriend, Jesse Howell, 19. The young man found brutally bludgeoned to death along a railway track. It looked like somebody had just been brutally beaten about the head. The 16-year-old girlfriend vanished without a trace. Who did this? Resendez wrote the detectives from prison with information that could be known only by the killer. It is a shocking admission. So far, nothing Resendez has confessed to has been false. So... As preliminarily, we have to ask ourselves, which makes more sense? That somebody fed him all the details um, about this this home inside and outside, and and out of the goodness of his heart or for whatever reason, he's going to falsely confess, or he was there and did the murder. And then there's the most striking reason of all to believe his confession in Daryl Kalahako's murder. Angel Resendez said he was an angel sent from God to kill sinners. He would profile people like Claudia Benton, the woman he was convicted of murdering. When he entered the pediatric neurosurgeon's home, he saw what he thought were abortion-related materials. Well, he felt like he was an angel sent to... He was very anti-abortion. He was very anti-homosexuality. And he felt like these were demons on earth that he needed to eradicate the planet from. And he felt justified in killing homosexuals and people that were involved in abortion. Coming up, Resendez's confession about Daryl. In his confession, Resendez says that Daryl picked him up in town as a day laborer to do some work. Her husband picked me up in Magnolias. Okay. They was to go to work. Here's Alex talking to Dia Montina about this. Um, Daryl picked him up at a place called Magnolias, which was a, a day labor spot outside of Houston. Was that even something that Daryl would ever have done, pick up a day laborer? Daryl was very, very, always, if somebody was always hitchhiking, he would. He'd give them a ride to the destination or whatever. He, he had a good heart to do stuff like that, you know. Anybody walking that, that would pitch, you know, he would pick up and take them to wherever, you know, and even give them money. Afterwards, Resendez says that he went back to Daryl's house to have a beer by the pool. And Daryl made a move on him. So Resendez went into a rage and beat Daryl to death. Now, you might be remembering that Diamantina said Daryl was bisexual, and that could be a motive. So it was like, wow, not only can he describe the house, he's also explaining exactly what a complete stranger is saying her husband is. And we're like, there's a lot of coincidences here. Also, when I was reading trial transcripts, I noticed that when Diamantina's youngest son, Alex, took the stand, he said that he saw Daryl around 5 p.m. at their home. Daryl told him he was expecting someone. Could this have been Resendez? Remember, Resendez said he went to Daryl's home for a beer after the job. And there's something else that points to Resendez. That night, there was a U.S. Marshal 
on the scene. This was a Harris County, Houston murder. You know, nothing, no reason for a U.S. Marshal to be on the scene that we can come up with. Indeed, it is incredibly unusual for a local, seemingly domestic murder to have feds on the scene immediately. Unless, perhaps, there was a suspect who had crossed state lines and was wanted federally. You know, here we are at 3 o'clock in the morning, and this U.S. Marshal is talking to neighbors and showing them pictures of somebody, showing them a photo of somebody to see if they've seen that person there, and we're working to figure out who exactly he was showing a picture of. It could be one of two people, we believe, so we're hoping to get some clarity on that, too. And you know who that marshal is. We do. Actually, at trial, the defense for Andreas wanted to bring the marshal in to testify to an alternative suspect, but he was not allowed. So as of right now, we don't know who that photo was of. And Danny and John are looking into other avenues too, like the other person they think the photo could be of. Resendez is a really good other suspect. We're not saying right now that we absolutely believe he did it. There are other folks who um, could have done this that were never looked at, that had violent histories and that were uh, very intimately involved in in Diamantina and and Daryl Kalahako's lives. They are also exploring the evidence found at the scene, none of which was traced to Diamantina or Andreas. They were able to pull fingerprints from a container on a bookshelf, a hearth tile from the fireplace, and they didn't match up to either Andres Diamantina, even though Diamantina lived in the home. It didn't match up to either of Diamantina's sons who lived in the home. In fact, they didn't match anyone who was known to be in the home. And Danny and John want to use them to compare it to other suspects, first and foremost, Resendez. If we can identify that his resend, that Angel Resendez's fingerprints were found anywhere in that home, we feel like we have a, a great push to move forward to free these both Diamantina and Andres. There's no other reason Resendez should have ever been in that house. Proclaimed Justice has submitted requests for all biological evidence in the case, but have not received it yet. Diamantina and Andreas have been in prison for 22 years. Alex is planning to write a book about Resendez and the rest of the unsolved crimes he confessed to before his execution, like Daryl's. And one case which particularly haunts Alex are four people Resendez says he murdered in the tiny border town of Blythe, California. To this day, the bodies have never been found, nor could Alex find any missing persons reports that matched what Resendez described. Alex is still digging and thinks perhaps these four people were actually part of a homeless encampment nearby. And one thing that Alex keeps coming back to in the Kalahako case is Diamantina as a person. And one thing she said to him particularly stood out. The only thing I regret is listening to my lawyer. I mean, don't do this, don't do that. If it's like I told him, why not? And he said, because Salinas is, is, is irrelevant. Okay, let's stop right there. She's referring to Salinas. He was her first husband before Daryl. If I really wanted to kill somebody for any kind of money, it would have been Salinas because uh, he had money. He was uh, millions of money, you know, dollars. Mm. She said to me, I was married to um, a guy who was one of the biggest drug dealers in Mexico. And we lived in the Rio Grande Valley. We had a, I lived in a mansion. It was all drug money. Um, I had a lavish lifestyle. 
um, you know, great cars and, and, and nice life. And that was her. She wanted to tell me that that was the reason why it was ludicrous that anyone should expect she'd kill Daryl for the money. She said, if I wanted to kill anyone for the money, it would have been my previous husband who had loads of money. Dia Montina wanted to use this as one of her defenses, that if she wanted to kill anyone for money, it would have been Salinas. And this is what is so striking to Alex. And I thought to myself, yeah, it's no wonder your attorney decided not to, <laughs> you know, she's like annoyed that her attorney didn't use that as a really good way of persuading the jury that she was innocent. And I'm thinking, well, if I was your attorney, I probably would have done exactly the same thing. But, you know, that's the way she thinks. And again, it, it, it all comes down to this idea that she's, you know, she's probably not the most sympathetic character. But again, like you, you've got to look at the facts of the case and uh, and and just it just doesn't add up. And I I think with Diamantina, you know, you shouldn't be getting a death sentence for being a terrible mother uh, and whatever else she did doesn't doesn't make her a murderer. And all the signs point to her not having anything to do with this crime. I reached out to Harris County District Attorney Kim Ogg to see if she plans to look into Resendez's confession in the murder of Daryl Kalahako. I have not heard back. If you want to help Proclaim Justice with Dia Montina and Andreas's case, you can go to proclaimjustice.org. And if you want to hear more about Angel Resendez and his crimes, listen to Alex's podcast, Huddled Masses, season one, Dead Man Talking. You can also find links to all of this on our website, unjustandunsolved.com. Y'all, if you like this show, please consider joining our Patreon. It shows how much you care and it helps us continue to tell these stories. Plus, you get some awesome bonus episodes and live questions and answers and other events as a thank you. Also, please rate and review. The more reviews, the more attention, and the more likely word about these wrongful convictions will reach the right people. Unjust and Unsolved is produced and reported by me, Maggie Freeling, with editorial consulting from Amber Hunt. For more information and resources, go to unjustandunsolved.com. You can find Unjust and Unsolved on Twitter and Instagram at Unjust Unsolved. And join the discussion on Facebook at Unjust and Unsolved Podcast Discussion Group. Unjust and Unsolved is a production of the Obsessed Network. You can find all of their shows at obsessnetwork.com.